Welcome to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I'm your host, Gwen McCaslin, for this discipleship series. And um, we have been working our way through Old Testament survey. Um, and so just kind of an overview and a summary of the Old Testament books so that, uh, you know, if you're reading in Judges, you can pull up the episode on Judges and get an overview and a quick outline of what's going on in the book and be able to know what you're reading. Um, my hope and my heart for these podcasts is to get you in the Word um, and to encourage us as believers to discover the miracle of this book. I was talking with a gal this week, and we were talking about the miraculousness of the book, which is something that I covered in the first couple of podcasts of this series. And um, just was really struck. She, she said to me, she goes, you know, I think it would change us as a church if we truly understood how miraculous the book we held in our hands truly was. And so if you are struggling to connect with the miraculousness of God's word, I would encourage you to go back to some of those earlier episodes and take a listen and remind yourself again of just the lengths that God went to um, write his word and the lengths he went to preserve his word for us and the accuracy with which um, the Bible has been preserved. Okay, so that said, I'm going to start today with First and Second Kings. Um, and the reason I'm kind of lumping these two together initially is because this is just like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and also First and Second Chronicles were all written um, as one longer book, but then divided because of scroll length. Because you got to remember, these scrolls got pretty heavy the longer the book. So the longer, the bigger the book, the bigger that scroll got. So for the sake of being able to actually carry them, they divided First and Second Kings. They did the same with Samuel, um, First and Second Samuel, and they did the same thing with First and Second Chronicles. Um, that's not necessarily the tr- same in the New Testament when we get First second and so on and so forth a lot of times those are letters and so the first one would be the first letter sent the second would be a second letter or a second response sometimes um, to some things going on in the church or whatever they got back as as correspondence so um, old testament though these were written as one divided into because of scroll length okay so for first and second kings we do not know who the author is um, we know that this was authored uh, in exile in Babylon, and we know that the what um, for this book is that this is all about an evaluation of the kings of Israel and Judah um, and the nation of Israel. Now, okay, all of that will make sense in just a minute. <laughs> what you need to understand is that in within the book of First and Second Kings, um, what you have is in Samuel, we had the nation of Israel uniting under initially King Saul, then David, and then starting into 1 Kings, we have it united, and at its pinnacle of opulence and power, control, it's it's golden days under King Solomon. Um, And then what happens with King Solomon, the end of his reign, is that... um, there is a rebellion and the northern part breaks off from the tribe of Judah. And so basically what that means, that echoes back to, remember those 
12 brothers that became the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, 11 of those tribes went and become Israel to the north, and you have Judah that breaks off to the south, or that is is the remnants, I guess is what you could call it, in the south. Um, okay, so... And then what follows in the rest of Kings um, is kind of a list of the kings for the northern kingdom and a list for the southern kingdom. And then those kings are measured on some guidelines. And so every every single king is weighed and what he did good, what he did bad, you know, and whether he was a good king or not. Um, okay, so... Let's go ahead and talk about the when. Uh, This was written at about 561 B.C. to about 539 B.C. Why um, the goal of these books was to demonstrate the value of obeying and the danger of disobeying God. Um, And so this should feel like a theme, right? The obedience and how important obedience is Um, because it's been the theme in several of the books um, that we've had in the past is just showing the importance of obeying God um, and and living a life consistent with the Torah. And so, okay, so there's our goals. The outline for First Kings runs uh, with a couple different, uh, I think we've got about five different divisions, okay? So chapter one through four, you have King Solomon's reign um, and the majesty of what it is, how it starts, that kind of thing. And I'll get more in depth in a minute on that. The chapters five through eight are the temple construction. um, And this is uh, for architects, for artists. These chapters are just lush with creativity, with um, just the the cultivation of the arts and construction. There are lavish descriptions of the items used, the design elements included. Um, and the one thing that was pointed out in one of the things I researched was that in his design, Solomon includes all of these uh, imageries of uh, like images of garden themes, um, kind of echoing back to the Garden of Eden, which is where God first walks with man. Um, and that his hope is that this temple, like the tabernacle, will be a place where God comes and he dwells with his presence. Um, and he dwells with man in the temple. Um, and I thought that was a pretty interesting um, connection to kind of put to things because. Um, you know, this had been something that was in David's heart and Solomon was the one who was allowed to actually build God a domain here on earth, um, which is what that temple was considered to be. Uh, you remember David kind of got to this point where he had finished building his, his house and he went, but God doesn't have anywhere to dwell in Israel. This isn't cool. Um, and so he sought the Lord on building a temple and the Lord the Lord, although he was honored by David's desire, he um, simply stated that his son would build it and that it wasn't David's task to build. Um, And so the interesting thing is you have Solomon with all of this wealth coming in from around the world, people seeking him out for his wisdom, everybody wanting to be... um, in diplomatic friendship with Solomon, um, there's a verse that kind of comes to the forefront 
um, right before we get into the next division. Um, It's in chapter 10, and it's verse 23, and it says, So King Solomon became greater than all of the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and all of the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. Um, And so as they came, they brought gifts. And so this was just a time of lavish, um, uh, lavish gifting from other countries, trying to court curry favor. Um, And unfortunately, one of the things that actually happens here is for all of those diplomatic relationships, it was very normal to intermarry. Um, And so King Solomon loved many foreign women. Um, Among the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, there was a Moabites, there were Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittite women. Um, And so what you kind of see here is to build those strengthen and strengthen those uh, diplomatic relationships, he had a lot of marriages that happened. Um, and so in 9 through 10, we have the Queen of Sheba coming up and the interactions with her. Um, but one of the things that kind of happens in between 9 and uh, 10 and 11 is we kind of see how Solomon's heart is torn away from his first love. Um, and so... By the time we get to chapter 11, verse 4, it says, For when Solomon was old, his wives had turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And then if you skip down to verse 9, it says, Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Um, And so, you know, God appearing to you is a very unique thing. Um, And so in spite of having the intimacy of God specifically appearing to you, he still managed to have his heart led away. Um, and so, you know, just looking at this story and just kind of meditating in the life of Solomon, you just saw a young man with good intentions who starts out, who's really seeking the Lord, who experiences these moments of beautiful um, interaction with God. He's got the potential to be everything his father was. And at the end of his life, he has violated every single uh, rule that God has, every single guideline that kings were given uh, in the Torah. Deuteronomy 17, you can look that up. Um, that gives all the guidelines for kings. He had violated every single one of them by the end of his reign. And one source um, I looked at said he ended up looking more like a pharaoh of Egypt than he did his own father. And I thought that was so telling, um, especially with the nation of Israel's, um, with their story of being in slavery in Egypt and rescued um, through the use of Moses and um, God rescuing them out and bringing them into a promised land. I just thought that was so sad to kind of have that summary um, assessment done. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, and that's not a biblical source. That was just uh, somebody's commentary on it. But I thought it was rather interesting to kind of think of it that way. Um, Because we think of Solomon as this amazing man. Um, And God definitely blessed his life, but for his life to have ended up where it was. Um, And I think, honestly, sometimes that's where uh, suffering, um, suffering's not necessarily a bad thing. 
our hearts, I think, are drawn closer to the Lord with suffering um, than it is when God blesses our socks off. Um, so, any case, okay, so moving on, after about chapter 9 and 10, we get into 11 through 16 is the next division, and that's where the kingdom splits into two. Um, and then we have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And I'll be honest with you, in my walk with God, this is one of the most confusing parts of Scripture. So the Scriptures that talk about this time, you really have to get your head around whether they're talking about the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom because they're two totally different entities. Um, and a lot of times it, they bounce back and forth in the next section of scriptures. Um, And so I will do my best to make all of that make sense as we walk through that. Um, The final division of the book of 1 Kings is the prophet Elijah. Um, And that is chapters 17 through 22. So that's a total of five sections for the book of 1 Kings. The key verse for the book of of, uh, 1 Kings would be, so give your servant a discerning heart, to govern your people, and to distinguish between right and wrong. And that is out of 1 Kings 3.9. You know, I think it would probably be good at this point. Let's go ahead and start at the beginning and walk through the transition because I was doing a lot of detail at the end of 1 Samuel. Um, So let's do that with 1 Kings. Um, Okay, so what you get at the very beginning, the first couple chapters of 1 Kings, is you get David's death. Um, you know, he's in decline at this point. He's not leaving his bed much. Um, you've got this weird story about how they think they look for a beautiful girl to be a nursemaid for him and, and that kind of thing. And then, uh, you get to the end of his life and at the end of a King's life, there is always this opportunity to come in and take over. Um, or, you know, there's always this question of who's going to be the heir. Um, and at this point, David had not made that declaration. He had made a promise to Bathsheba that her son was going to be the inheritor of the the kingdom. Um, but at that point, there's older sons, you know, there's all kinds of people who are kind of thinking it should be them. Um, and so what you have is Nathan and Bathsheba kind of have a discussion, um, and Bathsheba goes to David and asks him to, um, to basically keep his promise. Um, and so he actually declares uh, Solomon king. And then what happens in chapter like uh, chapter two, uh, basically all of chapter two is a series of political ex. Um, assassinations basically there's all these people that are executed and and basically what that does is it paves the way for the kingdom to unite under Solomon now you know we can make a judgment call from our age you know from our culture as to whether this is a great start or not but um you know this was what they did um now Solomon, you see him in the beginning of chapter 3 um, making a marriage alliance straight out of the, the chute with the king of Egypt. He marries Pharaoh's daughter, um, brings her here, and, and sets her up. Um, but then in, in verse 6 of chapter 3, you see Solomon seeking the Lord and praying. Um, and 
verse 7, he says, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of your my father David, but I am yet a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people and discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Um, and so one of the key things about amazing men in Scripture is that there usually is an amazing amount of humility. And so Solomon definitely has a great start in just that he's walking before the Lord, seeking wisdom. He's walking humble before God. Um and verse 10 says it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. Um, and so basically um, he responds back and he he blesses um, Solomon, but there's also comes with some warnings. So in verse 14, he says, if you walk in my ways, keep my statutes and commands like your father did, I will prolong your days. Um, and this was actually a dream, but this is one of the first times that God shows up to Solomon. And so you see him judge wisely right out of the gate. We have this story introduced of, of, uh, two prostitutes who had children and lived together and the one dies and, um, they're fighting over whose living child belongs to who. And he, he, um, summons a sword and threatens to cut the baby in half. And the one says, sure, go for it. And the other one you know, obviously it's her child and she does not want her child cut in two. Um, and so he obviously is able to discern exactly who's the mom. And this, and everybody marvels at his wisdom for this. Um, so in any case, it, it kind of gets around. Um, so we see a lot of details about who he sets up in offices and kind of him setting up his government in chapter 4. Uh Verse 29 of chapter 4 is kind of interesting. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and a breadth of mind or heart like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all of the sons of the east and all of the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men. Um, And then it gives some examples of evidently well-renowned. And his fame was known through all the surrounding nations. Uh, he authored or spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were over 1,000 and five. Um, he spoke of the trees. He seemed to be like a botanist. He knew a lot about plants and animals. Um, so men came from all peoples to hear his wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So you can just kind of see how God blesses. Um, he, I guess we could call him a geek. Could we call him a geek? Um, with just the, the, his fascination with knowledge and just the repertoire that is built for him uh, of wisdom given by God. So obviously. Um, okay. So chapter five, we got some alliances discussed um, and we're getting into the temple construction in these next couple chapters. So five through eight is temple construction. And what we see him do is he actually um, sets up with some of these foreign countries, like, okay, there's there's cedars over there, there's this, I need this over here. And he kind of makes um, a lot of relational, um, democratic relationships and sets up things to ship 
goods and materials in that he needs to do all of his building projects. Um, so he's he's quite the businessman, actually, um, if you look at it that way. Uh, the Lord gives him wisdom. You can kind of see this theme again. Um, chapter 5, verse 12, uh, just as he promised, there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a covenant. Um, you do have some forced labor kind of going on, which, I mean, forced labor, we can call that slavery, but, and we don't know who would have been involved in that, but he, he, that's his workforce. Um, and so you see a lot of that at the end of chapter five, kind of detailed out. Um, but then chapter six starts the building of the temple. Um, and it's all the details of that. And I think for anybody in architecture, um, this is where you could just really geek out and have a lot of fun looking at things and the significance of what's being carved in things or what's being used and um, all of those kinds of things. Solomon at the same time, or right around that time, is also building his own palace. Um, there's a palace built for the Queen of Sheba, or not the Queen of Sheba, sorry, um, Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, and so you can just see there's there's all of these uh, porches that are built, and um, it, honestly, it's opulence, it's creativity, it's massive amounts of, of some of the, probably the grandest architecture ever created being described in these chapters. And the one source I said as earlier that he he did a lot of like plants and carvings and that kind of thing to kind of echo back to the Garden of Eden um, where God dwelt with man. Um, so we get to the point where the temple has been completed and there's all of the furniture is being made. That's in chapter 7, verse 48. Um he makes all the furniture that was in the house of the Lord, so a golden altar, a golden table, which the bread of the presence. This is you and some of this should sound familiar because the temple was modeled exactly after the tabernacle. Because just like the tabernacle was the tent where God dwelled with his people, the temple was designed to be the house where God dwelled with his people. Um, and so they took the design over. And when I had talked about that uh, tabernacle design, remember that was the tent of meeting. Um, and that design, the design of that was copied from heaven. And so God had given that design um, to Moses on the mountain when he did the Ten Commandments. Um, and so Solomon basically took that design and then made it more grand yet. Um, and so you have the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 8. You have the Ark brought into the temple. And you have kind of this, what word do I want? Like this big assembly to dedicate the temple, to pray. Um, and Solomon addresses the people. And in, in some of what he says is very reminiscent of like how Joshua would have talked to the people, how Moses would have talked to the people um, where it's just this encouragement um, to stay faithful. In verse 22, he starts a prayer of dedicating the temple. Um, there's this moment for confessing of sins and restoration of the people, kind of this call to come back into alignment with the covenant that God made with them. Um, and so you have that in verses 33 uh, through 37. Um 
and then you have the benediction. Um, benediction would probably be 54 through the end of the chapter. Um, but I want to read some pieces out of the benediction because you're going to feel it. Um, 57, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers, that he may not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers, um, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no one else. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord your God, to walk in his statutes and to keep your commands at, as um, at this day. So, um, yeah, and then there's sacrifices that are done. This, this actually ends up being, because of the sacrifices, a really bloody day. Um, just lots of offerings being done and that kind of thing. Um, response of the people, you can see that in verse 66 of chapter 8. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king. And they went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. Um, I had somebody suggest that this last part was like a big barbecue. <laughs> I'm not sure what that would have looked like. Um, but there was a lot of burning meat and a lot of aromas that might resemble a barbecue at that moment. But the thing that strikes me as I read some of these Old Testament accounts is just how sensory, um, how many smells, how many sounds, how many... Um, just ex the experience was so sensory rich. Um, and I think I, I just, to try to put myself back there, sometimes I think that's kind of what the person was doing when they said huge barbecue. Um, so, but just to imagine what that would have looked like eight days of just dedicating feasting. I mean, there was no work done. It was like a national holiday. Um, the thing that, floors me is God's response. Like, I, I love God's response. And it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord um, and all that Solomon had desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. He had appeared to him as he had appeared to him at Gideon. And so the Lord's response to him is, I've heard your prayer and your supplication that you've made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there f perpetually, unendingly. That's a good another name for perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked in an integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and will keep my statutes and ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised your father David. And you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Um, and I don't know. I just, I just find this so interesting that God's response to him is an acknowledgement of him, but it also comes with a warning. Um, and obviously the Lord knows that those wives are going to draw his, his heart away. Okay, so in chapter 9, we see the end of most of his massive building projects. Um, and then we see him kind of move on to development of military, to um, ships, and kind of basically a navy. Um, and so basically, if you look, step back and kind of telescope back, and you look at the rain of Solomon, basically what he's done is he's done, because God has given him peace on all sides, he's focused on 
uh, developing inside the country. Um, and so he's developed things like trade. He's developed relationships with his peers, uh, the countries around him. He's uh, built his military up. He's, you know, and, and then because he's so wealthy and because there's so much peace, he's been able to do all of those things with opulence and, and ridiculous amounts of displays of wealth. Um, and so there's a lot of show to some of those things um, that have been created for, like, the military and those kind of things. So there's shields that are just, you know, made of certain things and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's almost like there's this display that's been created. But anyway, um, so you can kind of see the development of what's happening, but he's at the end of his building projects. And so, honestly, he's kind of run out of tasks to do um, to some extent. And so... What happens from that point is he seems to almost settle in um, and he loses some of that sharp focus that he would have had when he was in the middle of all those projects. Um, and so he comes to this season where, you know, he, he gets lost, quite frankly, in women in his relationships and you see his heart uh, drug off into the worship of like Astroth and um, Milcom and all of these things. And, and you get to verse 6 of chapter 11, where it says, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. And that should sound familiar because every single interaction he's had with God, he's walked away with this admonition to be careful, to follow wholly after God, to to have a pure heart. So basically, because he, Solomon, falls away, um, God divides his kingdom. Um, and so what you have at the end of chapter 11 is um, a, a prophet, uh, and I don't know how I'm going to say his name, but uh, Aja, Ahaja, or something like that, um, who is a Shilonite, uh, finds him and basically tears his new cloak um, into 12 pieces. And what he says to him is say, uh, he says to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. Um, and so that's the division of the kingdom. Ten tribes um, are referred to as the northern kingdom or Israel, and then the remainder is called Judah, the tribe of Judah, and they're the southern kingdom. And we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more, and I'll try to make sense of all of that crazy in our next episode. But thanks for joining. See you next week. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so find us on Facebook and Instagram at Open the Word Podcast or... Send us an email to openthewordpodcast at gmail.com. Is it time for you to plan a day trip with your peeps? Come and stay a while at Shia Market in Berlin. There is something for everyone, no matter what your taste or style may be. Visit the Village Gift Barn for your custom floral arrangements and timeless accessories for your home. Stroll upstairs to Shia's Style Boutique for your perfect outfit. Everything from accessories to shoes. Be inspired at country gatherings with decor from modern farmhouse to transitional design. 
then meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day by gathering to relax in our courtyard. You will leave feeling connected and refreshed. Step back in time with a stay at one of the oldest buildings in historic Berlin, Ohio, the Worthman House. This charming building has a rich history with origins dating back to as early as the mid-1800s. The newly restored two-bedroom, one-bathroom suite has hardwood floors and gorgeous chestnut trim throughout. It is also outfitted with locally made Amish furniture. It can sleep six and offers a beautiful panoramic view of Berlin's Main Street. Its location in the heart of Berlin is an ideal spot for walking to various restaurants and shops. Book your stay at the Worthman House through VRBO.